Today's interview is brought to you by VanEck, a global leader in asset management since 1955. You'll be hearing more about VanEck's income-focused ETFs later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. Super excited to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Brent Johnson of Santiago Capital. Brent, welcome back to Forward Guidance. How have you been? Good. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the invite. I'm I'm really happy you're here, Brent. Uh, you know, you focus on all things the dollar, and a lot of people are talking about the dollar because other countries are trying to sort of move off the the, the dollar standard. And you know, Brent, I just want to ask you, um, you know, one thing that gets it's kind of just bothering me is that you know the dollar's dead. Everyone knows the dollar's dead. It bothers me when people still want to conduct business in dollars because you know I've got my yuan. I've got my Brazilian real and like, you know, let's, let's do this. I mean, why are people still wanting to be conducted in dollars? Why can't people accept that the dollar isn't only dying, it's already dead? Well, that's a good question. You know, based on all the headlines, the dollars days are over. You know, you might as well just burn all your dollars because they're worthless. And, you know, we're going to go to some new BRICS based currency or some new hard asset backed currency. And it's, it sounds like to me, it sounds like it's a done deal. So I'm not sure what the holdup is. Yes, yes. Uh, of, of course, I am joking, Brent. So yeah. you're known as someone who people think you, of you as a dollar bull, uh, and someone who you know is a, a defender of thinks the dollar system is is here to last. And those are two different things. For the first part of this conversation, at least, Brent, I want to just talk about the sustainability of the dollar system, which is different than the level of the dollar. The dollar could be strong against other currencies. But people stop using the dollar, and likewise, the dollar could fall in value. But people still use it a lot. For our first half, we're, we're not really talking about will the dollar be strong or weak. It's just will the global dollar uh, uh, system continue. So, with that, I want to sort of propose to you the reason why people are, are noting that the the dollar global standard uh, uh, the days might be limited. So, uh, Brazil and China are in the BRICS alliance, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, uh, China, South Africa, and they announced an agreement to conduct all future trade transactions using their own currencies, not dollars. India is starting to use non-dollar currencies to, to transact with the UAE, the, the Russia. So, trading partners are uh, moving away from using dollars. And the thinking goes, this will continue. The dollar uh, standard will, will disintegrate. What is your view on this? I think there is anti-dollar hype right now. I think there is a lot of emotion and a lot of excitement about the possibility for it. So I'm not going to downplay the number of headlines, the excitement with which they're made, and the, and, the, and the desire. There is great desire for this to happen. I think the likelihood of it paying off or, or playing out is at least to the extent that many are people just accepting as a given, it is extremely unlikely. And part of the reason is, is because I think we're at a place in history where the whole world is in the process of kind of, I don't know, turning over, for lack of a better word, this fourth turning, right? This great reset. And all of these programs that, the, the, that these headlines are talking about, at this point, they are plans, Right. And if you read the articles carefully, they will often say something like, we have entered into an agreement to start discussions about a potential plan that could one day be implemented. So none of these headlines say it's going to happen right now. From a very high level, my view on this is it's these announcements are not surprising. Um, maybe the uh, rapidity with it and the volume with which they're being said and uh, and the the frequency which with with, with with they're being said in the last let's call it month um is new uh, it, it's the, the statements themselves are not new i think it's important to remember that the brics organization um which is basically a loose trade federation kind of at best was founded in june of 2009 kind of at the bottom of the crisis the global financial crisis um, and, and, and from the very beginning, it was a way to increase trade amongst these, you know, the global South or however you want to describe this, right? Some, some of the emerging markets. Um, the, one of the ideas was that they will come up with some kind of a common cur currency, which, which they can conduct trade. And for the last 14 years, since that was first announced every year, they get together and they talk about these things and they come out and they make a statement and said, we're working towards doing this, but so far, nothing has actually been done. Um, now, that's not to say that it never will be done. 
it's just to say that these announcements aren't surprising because they've been announcing them every year for 14 years now. There hasn't been a lot of actual progress. Now, again, that doesn't mean that there won't be. It just means that there hasn't been. And so when I see these headlines, it's not that I don't pay attention to them. You have to pay attention to them with, when, when that big of a portion of the world's economy um, makes announcements to just ignore it would be stupid. So I don't ignore it, but I also just don't take everything as complete fact um, because these announcements have been around for a long time. Um, you know, I'll give you a very good example of why I'm a little skeptical of these. Uh, number one, it's very easy to say. Number two, it's very hard to do. Um, number three, if it was easy to do, they would have already done it because again, this was announced, the, the intentions of this was announced 14 years ago. Um, four years ago in 2019, um, there was a big headline that came out that between China and Iraq, and it said that China and Iraq were no longer going to conduct their oil trade between the two in dollars. And this was heralded as a, you know, again, a nail in the dollar coffin, the petro, the petrodollars days were numbered. And the idea was that Iraq was going to sell oil to China. And in exchange, China was going to provide um, consulting services, build infrastructure, construction, a lot. They would pay in-kind services for this oil rather than pay dollars. And this, again, this was a big announcement. And then what actually, what it actually was when you looked into the details of it, um, the amount of, and so many people said China will no longer buy any oil from Iraq in dollars. Well, that's not true because- this deal only accounted for about 10% of the, the, the oil trade between Iraq and China. And then it turns out that the deal was never actually implemented. None of this has ever happened. And so, you know, there's a big difference between a headline and a reality. You know, one of the, one of the analogies I've used is, you know, for 15 years, I've had a plan to join the PGA Tour. It hasn't happened yet. You know, I would love it to happen. And I'm really serious about it. But, you know, the likelihood of me playing against Tiger Woods and the Sunday at the Masters is pretty low. Um, but again, I, I, I say that jokingly only because this is this this problem that's being dealt with by the rest of the world, this de-dollarization problem, is an extremely complicated one. And it's extremely complicated for a number of reasons. And and I understand all the reasons they would love to get out from underneath this system, but it's it, it's it's just much, much easier to say than do. And it, it, if all it took was anger and frustration to de-dollarize, the world would have been de-dollarized decades ago. But it isn't because it, it's it's this Gordian knot that it's just, it's really hard to untie it. And another analogy that I would use is it, it kind of reminds me of the Green New Deal headlines that we've seen for the last five years. You know, for the last four, five, six years, you've seen a number of headlines, you know, we are going to shut down traditional energy. There's going to be no more coal plants. The pipelines are going to be shut down for environmental reasons because of global warming. And we are going to transition to green energy. Um, okay, that's fine. And that process takes a while. Maybe it takes 5, 10, 20 years to do that. The problem is, is before those new programs were up and running, we had an energy crisis. We had a crisis that led to traditional energy spiking last year. Now, I think that's kind of the same thing that's going on with these efforts to de-dollarize. I have no doubt that the efforts are being made, and I have no doubt that plans are being put in place. I think that we are going to hit the wall with the global, you know, global economy before those plans are in place and implemented. And when that happens, I think traditional finance or traditional uh, global funding will spike in price in the same way that energy sp was spiking in price a year ago. And traditional funding is done in dollars. Um, so, so, so that that that's one thing I would say. So, I'm not diminishing the effort. I'm not diminishing diminish, diminishing um, the desire. What I'm diminishing is the capability and the timing of getting it in place in time. And and and, and part of the reason is that the process of de-dollarization is kind of goes in hand in hand with the process of de-globalization. But the, the the problem here is that. Every time we have had some kind of a global slowdown, economic slowdown, or a global crisis over the last 25 years, you always see the U.S. dollar spike in that scenario. So now if we're going through some kind of a great reset, or we're going into some kind of a conflict, or we're going into some kind of a deglobalization, that is probably not going to be a smooth transition, even if everybody was getting along and trying to do it in a cooperating manner. 
it, I think even under the best circumstances, it would be volatile. But this will not be done under the best of circumstances. The world is no longer cooperating to the same extent it was. And the U.S., for better or worse, whether you think they should or shouldn't, would, will, will not just stand by and watch as its place in the world is degraded. Um, and so I think they will push back and that will lead to volatility. And so I think what's going to happen is we're going to get into a crisis and I think the dollar is going to spike just like it always does. I don't think it's different this time. And I'm not saying that everybody should go out and bet on the U.S. dollar going higher. That's not the point of me pounding the table on the dollar. The whole point of me pounding the table on the dollar over the last three or four years is not to convince everybody that I'm right. It's to convince everybody not to bet everything that I'm wrong. Uh, because if you bet everything that I'm wrong and it, things play out the way they always have, you're going to get crushed. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the reality is, is that's a big part of what I, I see a lot of bad takes on how this is going to play out. And it's not that they can't play out that way. It's just that the probability of them playing out that way is extremely low. But I've talked to too many investors over the years who they, they hear something like this. They say, oh, my gosh, I have to get out of dollars. And they run and they put 70% of their portfolio in gold or uranium or some kind of hard asset or some kind of an anti-dollar play or an anti-United States play. Um, and, and, and rather than just you know playing the probabilities, they go all in on it. And I really want to kind of help people understand why you shouldn't go all in against the United States and against the U.S. dollar. Not because I'm an American exceptionalist, not because I'm a jingoist American who thinks we're the greatest power in the history of the world and nothing could ever bad happen to us. I think the U.S. is going to experience tremendous pain in the years ahead. I don't think it's going to be easy. And our role in the world may very well be diminished. But this is not going to happen in a calm manner. And I think when the, when, the, when the volatility shows up, I think you will see the dollar go higher. After last year's interest rate surge, income has made a comeback. And VanEck has the ETFs to help bring income to your portfolio. You can check out VanEck's wide range of income-focused ETFs using their Income Investing Yield Monitor, where you can search by yield, duration, and expense to find the ETF that fits your needs. With the Yield Monitor, you can effortlessly track monthly fixed income ETF category flows, yields, total returns, and more. To access VanEck's Income Investing Yield Monitor, go to vanek.com slash forward guidance. Now the disclosures. Investing risk includes principal loss. Visit vanek.com to read a prospectus before investing. Vanek ETFs are distributed by Vanek Securities Corporation, a wholly owned subsidiary of Vanek Associates Corporation. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. When I think of a global reserve currency, there's kind of a, it's a three-legged stool. If there's a fourth or fifth uh, leg, you, please please feel free to add. But it's in, trade invoicing, currency reserves, and then dollar-denominated debt. So when people buy and sell oil, copper, soybeans, if Brazil sells it with China, historically, it was done in uh, dollars, despite the fact that you know, neither of those countries uh, control, control the dollar. Likewise, China has a huge trade surplus, uh, you know, and the US has a huge trade deficit. So uh, China can park those assets in US Treasury, so currency reserves. It's the global reserve currency. That's where that term comes from. And then dollar-denominated debt. If a country wants to issue debt, Sometimes, you know, in Argentine pesos, it can be hard to borrow money in that, that currency. Uh, you have to pay 40%, 100%, right. something like that. So they borrow in dollars. And then you get the emerging market uh, debt crises, which you know, you know all too well about that. Uh, so those are kind of the, the three uh, spokes of the wheel. Let's start with trade invoicing. What was the historical advantages of Saudi Arabia selling it, selling oil in dollars how did that sort of system work? And then why are the arguments that Saudi Arabia is going to move away from that flawed? Yeah, so th this is a very good example um, the, for, for us to use because whenever you're talking about a productive economy, you have to kind of go back to kind of the first principles. What's a, what allows an economy to be you know, prosperous and profitable and, and efficient? Well, the first thing you have to do is be able to secure your own safety and your own substance. You know, if... If, if, if you have to go out and farm every day or you have to go hunt for your food every day just to stay alive and you have to be a soldier or have people, you know, uh, being the, uh, the protectors in order to make sure just to make sure that you stay alive, you know, that that takes up a lot of time and effort and it doesn't allow you to then go create a vibrant economy. 
Now, this the reason this is important now is because the deal that was made between the United States and Saudi Arabia, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia back in the early 70s, was that the House of Saud, which was the ruling family in Saudi Arabia, made a deal with the United States. And the deal was we will price our oil in dollars. And as a result, the U.S. will provide protection to that family, keep them in power over the years, you know, when, when other factions within Saudi Arabia try to challenge their, their status as, as the king or the head, of the head of the country, the U.S. would, you know, help them defend against that. And they would help them defend against foreign adversaries. And they would help them build an incredibly modernized global econ- uh, country. So if you go to Saudi Arabia now, you know, the highways are fantastic. The hotels are five star. There's swimming pools. There's all, you know, malls movie theaters, you know, power grid, all I mean it's a very modernized society which it wasn't 50 years ago. But that was the deal. You provide a you provide the world with oil and dollars and we will help you do all these other things. So now if if for, for this to for this to change if if Saudi Arabia were to go back on their side of the deal, well then the United States is not going to keep their side of the deal, right? And Saudi Arabia does not uh, necessarily have the the ability to defend itself. And and I'm not saying they're they're totally incapable, uh, but my point is, is they would no longer have uh, the U.S. as a protectorate in in that scenario. And I know some people say, well, that's fine. And they will just partner with Russia or China and Russia and China will come in and and they, okay, let's pretend for a second that that's the case. Let's let's pretend that that decision is made, that, you know, they're breaking the 50-year-old uh, deal between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is now going to partner with Russia and China. How do you think the United States is going to react to that? My guess is that they would not be happy. My guess is that they would not just fly back to Washington, D.C. and say, okay, darn it, I guess we lost that one, right? I mean, they're going to push back against this. And even if this actually does change, how long does it take for China or Russia to get in there and set up their bases and set up their systems and set up their, you know, their defense capabilities inside Saudi Arabia to, to defend to defend Saudi Arabia? It, you know, my guess is it, that's probably a years long process. But even if it could, let's pretend for a second it could be happened in two weeks. Well, what do you think happens in that two weeks? Do you think again? Do you think the U.S. just goes home and watches from afar over that two weeks, or do you think they try to subvert that effort a little bit? I would be willing to bet they would try to subvert that effort a little bit. And in that chaos that would come out of that, you know, I think there would be economic turmoil. So, again, th- th- this ability to just switch things like a light switch from one system to another and one treaty to another, I'm not saying it can't happen. But I, it, it, in my opinion, it will not happen in a peaceful manner. On March 29th, Saudi Arabia announced it had agreed to become a dialogue partner. It's funny, you're making all this point about words over actions. They say we're becoming a dialogue partner Um, in in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, a China-led political uh, organization designed to compete with Western organizations. And then you had uh, Total Energies, a gas company, announced that it had completed its first purchase of uh, liquefied natural gas, LNG, from a Chinese oil company using the Chinese yuan as the currency. So Brent, I definitely acknowledge there's a lot of uh, um, you know, hot air, empty verbiage, you know, just journalists getting a lot of articles that they can write about that people get very worked up over it. And, uh, you know, not being backed up by, by facts of the ground of people, of folks de-dollarizing. And, and, and when they trade, they're using a, a different currency other than dollars. But there is there is some of it. The argument that you just, uh, in your most recent response, just uh, elaborated on, that sounds like a political argument. Okay, the U.S. is going to retaliate in some way if they stop using the dollar. Uh, is there also an argument that the U.S. dollar is entrenched in a way and has advantage to be the global reserve currency in a way that the Chinese yuan uh, isn't? I'll give you an example. The debt, the massive debt that the U.S. has can actually be an asset of other people, whereas you know, China does not. You know, People don't own a lot of Chinese bonds because China is a uh, creditor, not a, not a debtor. And so are people going to own Chinese bonds or there aren't enough of them? Yeah, I mean, that... Th- there, there, there's kind of three pillars to um, to the to, to the U.S. Uh, dollar being the global reserve currency. So after World War II, the U.S. came out on top of World War II. You know, maybe not the sole winner, but largely the best uh, positioned participant in the war after World War II. And so they, along with uh, Europe, set up 
the, the Bretton Woods system and the current global order. And when they did, they stacked that deck in their favor in order to keep it that way, right? And so, you know, and in, and in that scenario, they set up the U.S. dollar would be the global uh, reserve currency, but it would also be backed by gold. So in many ways, gold was kind of the global reserve current, the global reserve. It's just that the dollar was tied to it, right? Now, Brent, and, and Brent, sorry, yeah. uh, in the first Bretton Woods, if a country developed a trade imbalance, there would be a mechanism that would self-correct that via the International Monetary Fund. IMF and by the IMF it's called international but it's it's pretty much run by the US right 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 yeah and and not only and not only that the, the the currency was convertible so if you felt like you know the trade was getting out of whack or that the US was running too big of a budget deficit or they were no longer being as fiscally responsible as they agreed to be you could exchange the dollars for gold and take the gold home right and that's and that's exactly what happened in the late 60s uh, France didn't like, uh, you know, with, with the with the cost of the Vietnam War and the impl- in, in implementation of a number of social policies that cost a lot of money. France said, "Give me the gold," and they even sent, you know, they famously sent a warship to New York Harbor to collect the gold and take it home. Now, and and as a result, Nixon delinked the dollar from gold. He no longer made it convertible, and that ushered in the area of floating exchange rates. Now, here's it's important to understand this. Had Nixon done that just out of the blue and had the euro dollar market not existed and been developed for 20 or 30 years at this point, that would have been a much harder problem to deal with. It was a problem anyway, but it would have been much harder to deal with. Now, let me, let me tell you what I mean by that, because this, this is so, so one of the pillars was that they won the World War II and they set up the, 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 the U.S. as the center of the global world order. That, that's one of the pillars of, of the U.S. dollar. The other pillar is the euro dollar market. Um, now, interestingly, this is not a government-sanctioned or enforced system. This is this was the private market outside the purview of you know regulatory bodies and government agencies doing business with each other in dollars all over the world outside the United States. So, because they were you know as part of the Marshall Plan, they were rebuilding all of Europe. There uh, and, and because U- U.S. was providing a lot of the financing, there was there was demand for dollars in Europe. There was also demand for dollars by Russia and the the now Soviet bloc to use dollars because they needed to do business outside of Russia and nobody wanted to use road rubles. So Russia started holding U.S. dollar balances in European banks back in the 50s, 60s. And so these, these were called euro dollars, not euros. This isn't the euro currency, it's euro dollars. And then, you know, countries, because there was so much demand for dollars, because that was kind of the common currency, people started transacting in dollars. And, you know, Japan would do business with the Philippines in dollars and Brazil would do business with the United States in dollars, but they would do business with Argentina in dollars. And so South Africa would do business with India in dollars. And these are the types of things that happened. And, and this, this was private individuals, private companies, private actors, not government-sponsored actors, entering into global commerce using dollars. And so from, you know, in the, from the 50s, 60s, and the 70s, this whole network of dollar credit, dollar invoices, and dollar balances sprang up outside the United States. And that, that market for dollars outside the United States, the euro dollar market, is bigger than the market for dollars inside the United States. So it's, it's enormous. And so there was all this demand for dollars outside the United States when Nixon delinked the dollar from gold. Um, and so you did see a lot of inflation in the 70s. But part of the reason it didn't become hyperinflationary and part of the reason it didn't lead to a collapse of the US dollar is because there was so much demand for the dollar outside the United States. And so, so the euro dollar market is, is another uh, piece of, uh, of, the, of the, you know, the backing of the United States dollar. The third one is all the U.S. dollar debt, which is sort of related to, to the euro dollar market. It's a, it's a part of it, but it's a big part of it, and it's very important to understand. As you mentioned earlier, if a company outside uh, the United States decides to raise money via a bond issuance or, or taking out a loan, if they do it in their local currency, let's say it's Turkish lira or Egyptian pound or uh, you know uh, Indian rupee, they're probably going to pay a lot higher rate of interest because there's not as much demand for that currency outside their country. But if they borrow in dollars, the, 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 the rate is typically lower 
And so they, they get cheaper financing. And because they're probably doing business in dollars, they've kind of matched their, their revenues to a certain extent uh, with their debt. That, that's one of the reasons they would do it. The problem is, so now there's all of this US dollar debt outside the United States. And it's enormous. Again, it, yeah, everybody knows that the US owes 30 trillion. Well, the rest of the world owes more than that to each other. And here, here's the real key part of it is they don't owe these dollars to the United States. They owe these dollars to each other. Again, this is a French bank making a loan to a Turkish company or a Japanese you know, company doing trade finance in dollars to a Philippine you know, supplier. Or, or, you know, and there's a number of examples like this, but it's all done in dollars. And so if the rest of the world just defaults on this euro dollar debt, they're not defaulting on the United States. They're defaulting on each other. So while their liabilities would disappear if all this defaults happened, a lot of their assets would disappear as well. And so this is what makes it so hard to de-dollarize. You know, to destroy the dollar system, the rest of the world has to destroy a huge portion of their own reserves. And it's, it's just very hard to do that. And so that, that's another thing that backs uh, the currency. The other thing is that, you know, you mentioned the capital markets. You know, if you're going to do business with the United States, it's going to be done in dollars. So the U.S. is typically every country in the world's either first or second biggest customer. Um, you know, Europe, I think, is t- or, or either Europe or China might be one or two, but then the U.S. is always number one or you know one or two as well. And so, if if these foreign country companies are going to totally de-dollarize and no longer use the dollar, well, then they're not going to do business with the United States. The United States is not going to conduct business in yuan or reals or euros. The U.S. is so. If you want access to U.S. markets, you're going to need to use dollars. Um, and, and because we have the biggest consumer market in the world, everybody wants to sell here, right? Um, so if, if the idea that you know China and Brazil are going to do all this business together and they're going to shut the U.S. out, well, then they're not going to sell to the United States anymore, right? And so that, that, that's a lever that the United States – so that helps you know, back the U.S. dollar. And then finally, the one that nobody likes me talking about is the military, um, you know, a lot of this stuff gets self-reinforced on its own. We don't need the U.S. military. But my, my point is, is if it ever came to it, if the U.S. was ever in serious threat of losing its place in the world due to economic functions, I have no doubts that they would use their military to help out, right? And I don't like that. I'm not advocating it. I'm not saying that should be the way it is. I'm just saying that's the way it is. And you need to understand that. And so that's another way that, uh, that that's another prong for the U.S. dollar. And the reality is, is there's just no other country in the world that can do all those things right now. Now, I know the rest of the world is trying to put together a coalition in order to counter it, and perhaps one day they will be successful. But right now, today, it's extremely unlikely. And and that's the point to get across is it's okay to understand that it could happen, and it's okay to put a portion of your portfolio on the possibility of it happen. But, But don't confuse a possibility with a high probability. That's kind of the message that I try to get across. Yeah, and just just on that point, um, de-dollarization, uh, you know, in the long term, it definitely could happen. You know, I, I think yeah. next year probably going to be using the global the global need a lot of dollars, and the year after that probably as well. So, folks, you know, investors thinking about their own time horizon, like if if they think you know they could be have this de-dollarization view that over fifty years plays out. But in two years, they lose a lot of money because they made certain investments that, you know, for an ultra extremely long view. Right. No, exactly. I, I, I want to make a point really quick. And part of the thing, part of the reason that, that, that one of the arguments that's given for this de-dollarization effort now and why it could succeed now is because the U.S. wasn't just messing around with Iraq or Afghanistan. Now they're messing around with China and Russia, who are nuclear powers. And we can't just bully them to do whatever we want them to do. And there is absolute truth to that. And I'm not denying that at all. But the flip side is also true. The U.S. doesn't have to just go along with anything either, because you know what? They have a lot of power as well. So the idea that that, that there's no way we could beat Russia because they have nuclear weapons. Well, then why is it so easy for Russia and China to beat the United States? Because we have nuclear weapons, too. And so, again, I'm not... I hope to God this doesn't you know, become some kind of a kinetic shooting war. Uh, but the idea that the U.S. cannot possibly win 
And, and that's the way a lot of these arguments come across is that this is a given. De-dollarization is a given. It's just a matter of time. You might as well get on board because there is nothing the U.S. can do to stop it. Well, unfortunately, if that's your view, there's a lot of things the U.S. can do to stop it. Now, maybe they won't be successful. Maybe the rest of the world in this effort will win. But it, w- but it will come at great cost because the U.S. will not just relinqu- relinquish its, its role in the world. And I think it's really, really important to understand that. You, you can make the argument about other countries, too. For example, Russia uh, basically had its foreign dollar reserves essentially canceled, uh, something I, I think the U.S. has also done to Iran. That can be quite bothersome. Your people from a country, if you're a leader, your people have worked so hard, have this extra surplus, you put it in dollars, and then poof, it's gone just because – uh, that the U.S. agrees with you. I, you know, that, that is a problem. So, I mean, do you see, for example, Russia anytime soon going back to putting, putting money into uh, foreign reserves? And the ruble collapsed in value during the war, but then Russia raised interest rates to, to 20% and the ruble restored, restored value. Yeah, so, you know, with regard to the sanctions and, and you know, I, I doubt that Russia is going to go back to holding U.S. dollar balances. The reality is, is they already still do. And they, you know, this idea that they don't, they only sell dollars, they only sell energy and rubles. Well, it's true. But the way that people get rubles is they send dollars or euros to Russia. Russia gives them rubles and then they do the transaction in rubles. So this idea that Russia has totally de-dollarized is, again, it's, 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 it's headline versus reality. I'm not saying they're not making efforts and I'm not saying that they haven't been somewhat successful in doing it. I'm just saying this idea that they no longer use dollars in any shape, way, or form is it, it's incorrect. Um, but and, and I think in many ways the U.S. probably should not have done what they did. They probably should not have confiscated uh, the reserves. Um, I think when we look back on this 20 or 30 years from now, we will say that was a key moment in the whole de-dollarization or deglobalization effort. Um, and so, you know, that has definitely kind of led to what's going on now. Now, having said that, a lot of times people will say they shouldn't have done it, and they will say that sanctions don't work and sanctions have backfired and sanctions are having no effect. Well, okay, there's some truth to that, but again, it's not it's not quite so simple. Like sanctions do have an effect. I mean, if, and if you and if you disagree, then just go look at the GDP growth over the last 20 years of places like Russia, like Iran, um, like Venezuela. And some other countries around the world that have had sanctions put on them. It does have an effect. And the reality is, is that right now, those sanctions are having an effect on Russia. They had a pretty good year last year, but this year, their oil and gas revenues are down so much that they're running their biggest budget deficit in decades. And they've had to change the way they tax their energy companies in order to increase the the Russian treasury receipts. And so, you know, the idea that it doesn't work at all. Again, you know, there's always nuance to all this stuff, and you can't just like read the headline and accept the headline as, as fact. Um, and so, you know, I think I think this is this is an example of where, you know, the U.S. probably, you know, this. I try not to get too tied up in what they should or shouldn't have done because they they don't consult me on this stuff, and they don't <laughs> consult anybody else on Twitter on this stuff either. They're just going to do what they do, and so my my, my analysis kind of stays on what what what's actually going to happen as opposed to what I think they should do. And the reality is, is they did it. They're probably not going to back down from it. Um, things will probably get worse before they get better. And, you know, it's part of this. Things will probably get worse before they get better. Part of my argument that we will have some kind of a crisis like you, you can't have these types of things going on and have economic stability. It just those, those two things just don't really go together. And Brent, what is it about a currency, about a nation's currency that other countries want to do business in and want to hold it, want to borrow in it? You said in the 50s and 60s and 70s, the euro dollar system was born, foreign companies uh, and countries wanted to to own the dollar. And that's why there wasn't huge inflation in the US in the 1970s when Nixon went off the, the gold standard. What was it about the dollar that was so attractive? Uh, during that time, what was it that was so attractive about the pound sterling in 1890, 1900? Uh, and then, you know, suddenly, you know, the, the United Kingdom, Britain emerged from World War II victorious, but with tons of uh, economic damage. And suddenly the dollar takeover, like what what causes yeah. that that domino to fall? Well, 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 there's a couple of things that make it the, 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 the global reserve in the first place. Number one is typically, Typically, the country that has the global reserve has one of the biggest markets in the world. Historically, that's kind of been the case. 
And if you and you typically countries around the world will want to do business with the global superpower, right? And if you're going to do business with the global superpower, again, whether it's Britain or the United States or France or whoever it is at the time, you're going to use their currency, right? And so the reason they would ex- the reason that people around the world would accept dollars is because it was in great demand around the world. Um, one of the definitions for money is the most marketable commodity, which means it has the most liquidity. And it's just a fact that the U.S. dollar had the most liquidity around the world compared to all of the fiat currencies. Now, I know there's several people out there saying right now, well, why don't they use gold? Gold is a much better store of value over time. Okay, this is absolutely true. And you know, when, when, when they say that money is supposed to be a medium of exchange and a store of value, Nowhere does it say that money is supposed to be the greatest store of value in the world. It just says it's a store of value. It doesn't say it's a good store of value. It doesn't say it's the best store of value. It just says it's a store of value. And I think most people who have studied money understand that fiat currency loses value over time. That, number one, is why governments use it. Governments, who are the ones that make the decisions, don't want money to be a good store of value. Governments don't want hard money. They want loose money that they can use to make promises with and then pay them off, right? Or use this printed money to to pay off the promises. But going back to the, the global reserve currency, just because you have the global reserve currency doesn't mean it's going to be a great store of value. And that's why most people or even institutions and central banks who earn dollar revenues don't just put it in a vault in cash. You can buy gold with it, which many central banks have done. You can buy U.S. treasuries, which many central banks have done. And those treasuries pay an interest rate. So again, you know, the interest rate largely makes up for the loss of purchasing power. Again, if you're going to hold these for 100 years, fiat currency is absolutely going to lose value. If you hold it for two or three years and you have it in some kind of an asset that appreciates against the failing fiat currency, not so much. Um, so... You know, again, you kind of have to understand it, it, the, the whole idea that the, the world is going to go back to a gold standard. Can it happen? Of course it can happen. Is it a possibility? Yes, it's a possibility. Is it a high probability event that's guaranteed to happen? No. And the reason is, is because the people in power, especially Xi and Putin, do not want handcuffs put on them. I mean, the idea that Xi and Putin are probably the two biggest, quote unquote, strongmen of the last hundred years, or at least since World War II. The idea that they would want to have their biggest tool dictated to them, as opposed to them being able to control that tool, to me is just laughable. Now, it might be forced on them. They might have to do it, but I don't think that they will do it willingly, nor would any other government leader. Um, and so, you know, I, I now, this also doesn't mean that gold won't go to $5,000 anyway. I, I think yeah. gold will go much higher in the years ahead. I just don't necessarily think it's going to be because, you know, Z and Putin want a gold-backed currency. I couldn't agree with you more, Brent, as you know, folks watching this can see on your Twitter handle at Santiago uh, AU Fund. As the AU might suggest, you, know, you, you are a gold bull as well. But, you know, Brent, I, I yes. really agree with you on the, the gold standard. The Bretton Woods 3 thesis pr- proposed uh, by, by Zoltan Posar, that's not actually that – we will go to a gold standard. It's just that gold will make up an increased percentage of, of foreign exchange reserves or reserves uh, for government uh, reserves uh, as well as central bank holdings. And yes, you know, you cannot conduct commerce in something of which there is such an unstable and limited value. Something like you know, you're going to go to the uh, Starbucks and buy coffee with gold. It. Um, yeah, it, it just doesn't doesn't yeah. work. And then you have paper that is backed by gold. You know, we saw in the Great Depression. It, it the 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 historical um you know the track record of the gold standard is 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 not great. Um, and you know something that's an even harder currency like Bitcoin, not currency, and assets that that would be you know even bigger. Let's say we go to a Bitcoin standard, and then you take out a million dollar loan in Bitcoin when Bitcoin's thirty thousand bucks, and then two years later it's at two hundred fifty thousand, which is where many people think it's going. How do you pay off that debt? Right. I mean, it just it just becomes massively deflationary. That's just that's kind of an extreme example. But that that's the way I would explain it. You know, the, the other thing I would say with this whole. Uh, you know, this move to the kind of a reset or a new system or Bretton Woods three, however you want to describe it, you know, for, for years and years and years, the idea was the dollar was going to lose value and go through hyperinflation. And then, you know, that's how it would lose. Well, then, you know, over the last couple of years, the dollar 
despite all the QE, despite all the helicopter money, it actually made it to a 30 year high last year, right? And then it became, well, the dollar is going to not lose value versus other currencies, but it is going to lose value versus things. Okay, no problem. Again, all fiat currency loses value against things. This is not a uniquely US thing, but the US is losing less against things than the other currencies. And then the argument became, well, okay, so the US dollar is rising versus other currencies um, and, and, we're, and, and we're still using dollars globally, but the US dollar is just not the global reserve anymore. It's a global reserve currency, but it's not the global reserve asset. You know, they're going to buy you know, countries and companies and central banks are going to buy real assets, gold, you know, other you know, industrial commodities. Okay, well, that's a, that's a commodity bull market. If the dollar is still the global reserve currency and still used for the majority of trade, but now rather than just holding U.S. treasuries, they also hold gold and some kind of commodities, that's a commodity bull market. That's because all currencies are losing value. And the other thing I would say is with, when you look around the world and you know, all these central banks have been buying gold. Okay, and the idea is well, why are they buying gold? Well, because the U.S. dollar is losing value. Well, okay. But their own currencies are losing value as well. I mean, if you're in Brazil, you probably want to own, and you know how bad the real is, you probably want to own some gold. If you're in China and you know you're going to have to print a bunch of yuan to deal with your, 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 your real estate market, you probably want to own some gold, right? And so the idea that all the reason that all these central banks are buying gold is only because of the dollar losing value. It's just, it's crazy because these other currencies are losing even more value than the dollar is. So, you know, if, you, if you're in an emerging market country, you better be glad your, 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 your central bank is buying gold. Uh, because, you know, again, just because you're buying gold rather than U.S. Treasury, it doesn't mean that the, the U.S. dollar is losing its currency status. Yeah, the, maybe they're not putting all of their reserves in U.S. Treasuries anymore. But again, this is a reflection of a commodity bull market than it is a change in the system itself. Brent, what are the circumstances uh, under which the dollar appreciates against other foreign currencies? versus when it, when it uh, uh, depreciates. In particular, I'm thinking of interest rate differentials as well as the differences in, in growth. You know, if the U.S. is growing a ton, the rest of the world isn't, uh, vice yes. versa, or the rest of the world is, you know, interest rates really high and the U.S. has uh, you know, zero interest rates. Or, you know, in the case of, you know, J uh, Japanese interest rates are at zero and Fed hiked uh, rates a ton. And then you had a, a huge devaluation in the yen um, uh, uh, last year, which is slightly reversed right. itself. Uh, yeah. So how, how, how do things play out? This dollar smile explanation. And, uh, you know, if, if I if I remembered the person's name, I, I would I would quote it because this is not my this is not my analysis this is theirs. And I, and I think it, it explains it very well, um, is that, you know, you have the dollars high on one end, it's low in the middle and it's high on the other end. Right. So there's a smile. And, and the smile is basically when things are really good and the economy's growing and the Fed is raising rates, well, then people want to invest in America because you get paid a higher rate for holding onto the dollar and things are expanding. The reason they're raising rates is the economy is expanding. You know, you want to get in, you want to buy U.S. assets, watch them appreciate. So under that scenario, the dollar does very well. On the other end, things get really bad. You know, some kind of a global crisis, global liquidity dries up. And because there's all this dollar debt in the world and you need dollar debt to not only do business with the United States, but service your euro dollar liabilities, the dollar becomes in great demand on that side of the smile as well. Now, in the middle, in the middle of things are just okay here. You know, we don't have a crisis. We're not really growing. We're kind of stagnant, but things are better somewhere else. Then that's when the dollar would typically fall versus other currencies. Um, and I think we're kind of in this place now where we're probably going to swing back and forth fairly quickly, be things, things being good and things being really bad. I don't think we're going to spend a lot of time with the U.S. being stagnant while the rest of the world is doing great. And the reason I say that is because I think we've reached this point in the cycle, this grand cycle where debt, this debt super cycle where debt is going to matter. And I don't think that we have a situation where the U.S. can go into a massive recession as a result of its problems while the rest of the world can grow and do well despite their problems. So I have a, in my mind, there's a scenario where the whole world does okay together somehow, you know, whether it's due to money printing or whether it's due to bailouts or whether it's some new technologies discovered, the whole world could grow together and be okay. We could have a situation where the whole world could go down together because things get really bad. Uh, and, you know, in, in, that, in that scenario, everybody goes down together. I could see a scenario where the U.S. does okay 
while the rest of the world does very poorly. But I cannot see a scenario where the rest of the world does well and the U.S. does poorly. Now, is it possible? Yes, it's possible. But to me, that's a very low probability event. And so in three of the four scenarios, I, I prefer to be in U.S. dollar and U.S. assets. Uh, and if, if, if the fourth scenario does come, um, I think in that scenario, I'll be okay as well, but I'll probably, I would have to pivot under that scenario. But I think that scenario is, is pretty unlikely and, and I, and I've never really seen that play out yet. And, and again, the reason it's very hard for that to play out, it's very hard for there to be a lack of dollar liquidity inside the United States, but plenty of dollar liquidity outside the United States, just based on the design of the system. So the idea that credit's going to be contracting in the United States in dollar terms, but it's going to be expanding in dollar terms outside the United States. To get your head around that and figure out how that would actually work, I think is a big, big challenge. And that's why I think it's it's a real low probability event. That makes a, a lot of sense on a long-term b- basis, but it is true that China right now is emerging from a recession and the US probably is entering a recession. So you do have that kind of... Uh, you know, other other countries could be doing well sure. economically when we might not be, be willing in the short term, like well, next and, year. Yes, I agree. And, and, and that's where you can see kind of the bottom of the smile. I don't I don't think we could stay there for very long, but we could absolutely stay there. And this is this goes back to something else I should say is I've always said that I think this will take a lot longer to play out than most people. These things always take longer to play out than you think that they should. And I'm not sitting here saying that, the you know, the dollar had a big run last year, went to 115. It's pulled back to 102. So it's still at its highs from COVID. Uh, but I'm, it's, it's possible the dollar goes back to 95. Maybe it goes back to 90. And we have this, this, this lull for a year or two. Maybe the Fed comes back in and, and central banks around the world provide liquidity. And we get another cycle of QE where asset prices rise, currencies lose value. And then we hit the wall two years from now, three years from now, four years from now. But, but the point I would make is that the dollar going down does not solve the problem. The dollar going down takes a little bit of a pressure off the global economy that allows it to expand. But as the dollar comes down, the rest of the world will just issue more dollar debt. They will continue to transact in dollars. If they don't transact in dollars and they start de-dollarizing, then there's going to be less dollars circulating in the world. And if there's less dollars circulating in the world, it's going to be harder to service those US dollar liabilities outside the United States. And that typically would lead to a contraction, not a boom. And so, you know, like I said, maybe it's possible that the, the, the world provides, you know, gets together, and provides another QE round and we kick this can down the road two or three years. Um, but this is not going to get resolved with the dollar going lower. In my mind, the way that this all gets resolved and the way we have this big reset is the dollar going higher. Right. And that final leg of the stool are those dollar-denominated debts. And as you say, the U.S. issues a ton of debt, both corporates, but you know, the government as well, but also foreign governments and foreign companies, they have dollar-denominated debts uh, as well. So this countervailing pressure. What do you think about the fact that you know, the U.S. does have a ton of debt and that you know, we are coming up on, on a debt ceiling where, whereby you know, if politicians don't get their yeah. act together, you know, the, the full faith and credit of the United States could be at question. And the following argument that in order for the U.S. to remain current on its debt, the Federal Reserve has to keep interest rates low via some form of yield curve control, which you know would might you know, be a threat to the, the value of the dollar against other currencies. I think to a certain extent, there was a big confusion on why the dollar got strong last year and then why it's fallen off over the last six months. And to my mind, there's really very little confusion. It's all, the movement of the dollar of the last year is almost all, not all, but almost all related to interest rate expectations. It was about a year ago that the rate hike started and the rate hike expectations um, kept increasing. And as the rate hikes happened and further rate hike expectations kept rising, the dollar rose along with it. Towards the end of last year, when, when, when Powell made the comment, you know, we still have more room to go, but we have accomplished a lot. We will be data dependent. Um, and at some point, we would expect that we will be done. He said something along those lines, right? Well, so when data started coming in a little softer, when, 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 when inflation expectations started to peak, and then interest rate hikes, the future interest rate expectations fell, and even future cuts started to show up in expectations, the dollar has come back off. And so, you know, the last year has really traded on interest rate expectations. Now, I think what's happened also over the last six months, it's, it's, it's interesting that it happened at the same time. 
And it also, I think, lead, explains why the dollar has fallen so much in such a short t- period of time. Again, it, we talk about it falling so much. It's fallen 12, 13%, yeah. but it's still higher than it was at the COVID crisis, right? So, you know, you know, the whole zoom out thing, I think, is appropriate. But, but what else started happening about six months ago, about the same time that the rate hike expectations started coming down, is we started to bump up against the, 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 the debt ceiling. Okay. This is important. This is this is a little bit hard to explain, especially if people are not familiar with this. But let, let me let me explain why it's important. Around the same time, you started seeing these, you know, where 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 Powell said we're going to continue to raise, maybe not at the same pace, but we're going to continue to Q, QT. At the same time, you started to see these articles and these headlines that would come up that Yellen's efforts or Yellen's actions are counteracting Powell's efforts. And what the Treasury is doing is actually flooding the system with liquidity, which is counteracting the QT that the Fed is doing. So you've got the Fed and the Treasury acting against each other. The reason this started to happen was because we started to bump up against the debt ceiling. So as the U.S. Treasury, they, 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 they are authorized to issue bonds, take on debt based on the authority from the government, from the Congress. And they have ridiculously, they've put this debt ceiling in place. The debt ceiling always gets raised because Congress always wants to spend money. But whenever we hit it, it always becomes this big theater. They act like they're not going to raise it. And they hem and they haw and they go on TV. And then, of course, they ultimately raise it. But in that period of time where you're up against the debt ceiling, the Treasury cannot issue new bonds because they can't go over this limit. So as old bonds mature and the debt falls, they can issue new bonds to replace those to keep it at the limit, but they can't issue incrementally net new debt to go over the limit, okay? So what that means is that the pace at which the Treasury has been issuing bonds over the last six months has fallen dramatically because we're up against the limit. And the cash that the Treasury has in their bank account at the New York Fed, they still spend that. So typically what happens is, the Fed or the Treasury spends money into the market. And at the same time, so they're giving liquidity to the market. At the same time, they're issuing bonds. So they're putting bonds into the market and they're taking liquidity out of the market. Right. Mm-hmm. So the, the, typically there's kind of a net, a net zero. They're, 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 taking, they're spending money, but they're taking money in. They're spending money, but they're taking money in. And they're not allowed to have a negative balance by law. They're like, you know, in, a, in, a, in right. a country, you, you can print as much a king. Oh, I'm going to clip my coins. The gold is devalue. Yeah. But under U.S. Right. law, again, this is just a framework. You, the Treasury can't have a negative balance at the Fed, right? Correct. Correct. And so, yeah. what's been, so they had a very high balance from all the bonds that they issued, you know, during COVID. And, and, and you know, when the debt over ceiling. Trillion. The, the, trillion? The, yeah, over, yeah. They had, I think they had up to 1.5 or 1.6 at one yeah. point. I, I don't remember. the. I can go Many. look it up. But but the point is is they've been they've been drawing that down they've been spending it spending it spending it spending it and now they haven't been taking any in because of the debt ceiling so now they've been so over the last six months they've been spending money into the market but they haven't been draining it and so that has given a relative amount of liquidity to the market that otherwise wouldn't be there now what happens when the debt ceiling is raised which listen it number one it absolutely will be raised it's just a matter of when. When that debt ceiling is is raised, the Fed is going to be in there selling bonds like crazy, and they're going to be draining a lot of that liquidity. And the, and if you if you look historically, whenever we have bumped up against the debt ceiling, it has historically been a weak time period for the dollar. And as soon as that debt ceiling has been raised, it the dollar typically tends to appreciate. Now, there's always exceptions; it's not always the case, but I'm just telling historically that is what has happened. Um, so I, I would expect that to happen again this time. Now, let's go back to what happens if they don't raise the debt ceiling and we, quote unquote, default. It's possible that we could have a very temporary default. And then, you know, because then the Congress would really get together, they'd pass it. And, you know, we pay the coupon I don't know, 10 days late, 30 days late. That would obviously not be a great thing. But here's here's what's interesting. If you go back to 2011 when the US debt was actually downgraded. Now think about what this means. This means that there's fear that the treasury bonds won't be paid off. The last time, so, so when the debt was actually downgraded by the S&P, by S&P Standard & Poor's in 2011, you would think that that would send treasury prices down because they're not being paid. 
Well, no, actually, treasury prices rallied like crazy. And it's because it was going to cause chaos in the financial markets. And, and, and everybody knows that the U.S. government will at some point pay those bonds and pay that interest. Now, they may pay for it with printed money, but they are not going to default. Then they may default in real terms, right, because of the inflation involved. But they're not, there's, no, there's no real danger that you're not going to get paid your dollars that you spent for those treasury bonds. And people knew this. And so they bought treasury bonds because they knew they would rally, right? And that's exactly what happens. Could something like that happen again? Yeah, sure. It, it could happen. And, you know, with, with all the political, you know, clown show that's going on these days, it wouldn't surprise me at all. But, but the debt ceiling will get raised and, and the U.S. will start issuing bonds again. And here's the other thing I would say. Everybody, uh, not everybody, you know, the, the common refrain now is that the U.S. is going to have to go back to yield curve control. There's no yep. long, there's no way that they can pay off these debts without printed money. Uh, the banking system is in trouble. They're going to have to bail out the banks, so they're going to have to print dollars. Um, the real estate market, the, the the commercial real estate market is a disaster. They're going to have to print money to, to to take care of that. Okay, let's take all of those. A year ago or six months ago, you know what was happening in Britain? They had to go in and they had the, the Bank of England had to bail out the, the, the UK sovereign bond market. At the same time, the ECB set up a facility to buy periphery bonds because Italian yields were spiking. So they, and, and at the same time, China was having to dramatically decrease the, or, or dramatically ease money, uh, uh, do uh, easy monetary policy to deal with their real estate market that was crashing. At the same time that the Bank of Japan was having to intervene in both the yen market and the JGB market for all of the reasons that people are worried of one day happening to the United States. So my point is, is that, yes, these things can absolutely happen in the United States. They probably will at some point happen to the United States, but they are already happening and happened a year ago or six months ago in many parts of the rest of the world. So this idea that this is a uniquely U.S. problem. We're the only ones that are going to have to print money. And as a result, the U.S. dollar is going to get inflated away and, you know, whatever it is, hyperinflation. It just is historically wrong. And, you know, think about everything they did after COVID. Q, or after, let's just go all the way back to the global financial crisis. QE1, QE2, Operation Twist, QE3, helicopter money, bailouts, PPP, you know, scandal at the Fed, you know, the Donald Trump saying they need to cut rates. All of these things that have happened to the dollar over the last 15 years were, should have sent it much lower. And yet six months ago, it was at a 30-year high. So, you know, again, it, it, it's, it, it's important to understand that fiat currency loses value over the time. It's important to understand that empires always fall at some point. But it's also important to understand that, you know, inevitable is not the same thing as imminent. And going in on a low probability um, event is not the same thing as going in on a high probability event. And it's just important to keep all these things in perspective, zoom out, so to speak, as you're taking a look at these events and trying to allocate your portfolio. Hmm. Thanks for that, Brad. My, my final question for you is, I know the Chinese Belt and Road Initiatives makes a lot of loans some of, to, to other countries, some of which other countries are struggling to pay, pay back. Are those loans typically de denominated in dollars or in yuan? And yeah, what do you think of the odds of a, of a yuan milkshake? Well, you know, the, the Belt and Road, it, it, you're right, though, a lot of those bonds are coming or those loans are coming under pressure. You know, if you think about the Belt and Road, it's really a copycat of what the U.S. did with debt diplomacy around the world for the, much of the last 50 or 60 years. In many cases, China doesn't necessarily mind if they default because then they get to go in and, you know, extract natural resources or take over an airport or a railway or whatever it is. So in, in many ways, that's kind of part of the strategy. A lot of these Belt and Road initiatives have been done in dollars. The, the, the China has used their dollar surpluses um, to um, you know, extend credit in dollars. I think as you know, this dollar shortage, I think that, that will happen comes up in the years ahead, I think these will increasingly come under pressure. The problem with trying a, a, a Chinese yuan milkshake is nobody wants yuan. You know, it doesn't even trade outside the outside of China very much. There, there, there's a there's an internal yuan and an external yuan, but the, the external yuan is really just to get another foreign currency and go on your way. Like no nobody's holding yuan balances in, in, in their accounts, and so if, if there's no demand outside of China for um, yuan, it's really hard to see a yuan milkshake. 
again, the whole reason that I you know, coined this term, the dollar milkshake, is there's so much demand for dollars outside the United States. That's really the key to it. This euro, this, this euro dollar market that exists outside the United States and creates an incredible amount of domestic currency demand outside the United States is really what sets the dollar apart. When the U.S. does QE or prints money or however you want to describe it, they're doing it for the whole world, right? When Japan does it, they're doing it just for Japan. When Europe does it, they're doing it for Europe. When China does it, they're doing it for China. So it, it, this allow, because there's so much demand for U.S. dollars, this allows the U.S. to kind of, quote unquote, get away with it to a greater extent than the rest of the world without their currency, you know, going through, you know, hyperinflation or, 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 or uh, you know, just disappearing. Right. Oh, Brent, I'm just going to find a question about last time we, we spoke, uh, which was at, at a BlockWorks event in New York, which, by the way, as soon as you were about to tell me really interesting uh, argument about the, <laughs> the, the Fed and the Treasury, the emergency a, a fire alarm went off. So it's kind of like you know the Fed, the Treasury, they, they don't want you talking about this. But uh, yeah. at the time, you, you were worried about a sovereign uh, debt crisis. How have your uh, worries about that evolved over the past six months? And to what degree does the Federal Reserve uh, drastic rate hikes pl play a role in that? Well, number one, my, my, my fears have not subsided. Interestingly, it was about a week after that you know, conference or that interview where we were talking, where the Bank of England had to bail out the gilt market, right? That's when the Japan, Bank of Japan had to step in and support the JGB market. I mean, that is a sovereign crisis. When, when central banks are stepping in to save their own sovereign bonds, that is that that is, is is at least the early stages of a crisis. Central banks are extremely good at kicking the can down the road, um, and when volatility strikes, you know that's their job to come in and calm the markets. And they did. You know, I give them credit. They came in. Both of those the most of those markets were in crisis, and they came in and they calmed things down. And six months later, you know those uh, currencies have rebounded, um, and those economies have 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 come back from the brink. But I have no doubt in my mind that we will revisit those those same issues. And a big reason is, is because of, you know, the, the interest rate hikes by the United States. You know, the reason that China was in a tough spot last year, the reason that Japan was in a tough spot, the reason that Europe was in a tough spot, the reason that many countries around the world were in crisis last year was because the U.S. dollar was getting stronger. And the reason the U.S. dollar was getting stronger was the rate hikes. Now, as the rate hikes expectations have backed off, that has allowed the dollar to come back and that's taken the pressure off of the global economy. But if you think about it, if you think that debt matters, and if you think we're going to have some kind of a reset due to asset prices coming down, then that means that the dollar is going higher. You're not going to have asset prices crashing along with the U.S. dollar crashing. It just doesn't work that way. The reason that asset prices crash is the dollar, the availability of dollars dries up and the price of the dollar goes high. Now, the reaction the reaction to prices going down, meaning central banks come back in and provide liquidity, the reaction to the, to the crisis could make the dollar go down, but the crisis itself involves the dollar going higher. And so that's why I say, if you think that more QE is coming, then you're actually a dollar bull. Right, right. If nobody, right. because needs, before if nobody, the QE ha happens, there will be a crisis and that and during that crisis, asset prices will fall, commodity prices will right. fall, assets and commodities are priced in dollars. And uh, the, right. the dollar will go up, and and that's why right. So, the Federal Reserve printing a bunch of money. Uh, you know, some people don't don't like the word print, but you know, we're just yeah. we, we get we're it's easy, go it's with the it. easiest way to explain it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Th that uh, yeah, you know, it increases the supply of dollars, and it could push it up. But it, there's, there's going to be a crisis in the same way that. During quantitative easing, uh, interest rates actually rise, but that's because it just came out of it was coming into crisis. And when there's a crisis, interest rates are very low. The, the dollar right. value is, is very high. Um, well, right. Brent, we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for, for sharing your insights. So folks can find you uh, at Santiago AU Fund on Twitter. Um, where, what's your website if people want to check out, learn more? Um, you know, a friend of mine and I started a, uh, a show we do a couple times a week. It's really kind of a lighthearted show that covers kind of finance, politics, markets. Uh, we call it Milkshakes Market and Madness because there's plenty of uh, madness out there. But if you go to milkshakespod.com, um, you find the website and you can find it on YouTube and really all the, all the different podcast platforms. Um, you know, and I think you and I have done a few uh, interviews in the past. Uh, you know, probably find them on, on your website as well. Uh, and and uh, I would I would encourage people to find them either on your site or on YouTube or wherever. 
Um, I appreciate you having me on. I think it's kind of an important time to talk about this stuff. You know, again, I'll, I'll just sign off and say, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but what I know is that all the headlines don't tell the whole story. So, you know, you got to do your homework. You got to pay attention. You can't just accept what a headline says and, and, and think that that's going to be exactly the way things play out. Definitely, Brent. I just have one more final question, which is for you. Uh, the theory first proposed maybe by Charles Kindleberger, I don't know, but there needs to be a currency hege- hegemon, hegemon, however you pronounce that word, the sterling standard, the pound sterling, the Dutch guilder, the US dollar. There has to be something. It can't just be China's doing business in yuan, India's in rupees, the US in dollars, and it's all we're all sort of on the same level. No, there has to be a hierarchy at the top of the pyramid, someone to save the system, someone to bail everyone out. Do you believe in that and that, you know, you say you you believe the dollar standard will, will be here for a very long time, but if and when it is replaced, will it be by a there is a number one currency or could it be something like a multilateral system that's more um, you know equal? I think we could have a multilateral system for a little while, but I don't think it would last for a very long time. And and part of the reason is and this gets a little philosophical, but in many ways global reserve currencies are not about economics. They're really about power and it's about an imposition of will. And whoever the biggest baddest boy or girl on the block is typically enforces their will. Now that's, you might not have to like that, but that's typically what history plays out as. And if you're going to do business with the biggest baddest girl or boy on the block, you're probably going to have to use their currency or whatever they would like you to use. And so I think that's why you can have these relative short periods of of multipolarity or multi-currency or regional blocks but ultimately, I think the conflict that comes out of that, we'll see a hegemon emerge. And when that hegemon emerge, they typically don't care what anybody else thinks. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I think you will be sub- subject to whatever, they, whatever system they would like to put in place. And the thing is, is whatever system they put in place, it doesn't have to make sense. You know, think about the Soviet ruble. You know, it lasted for 60, 70 years. It didn't make a lot of sense. It didn't have a lot of economic power behind it, but it lasted for 70 years because the the Soviet Union imposed their will on on the people underneath it. And so that, you know, just because something doesn't make sense doesn't mean it can't work for at least a while. Right. Brent, thanks again for sharing your insights and thank you everyone for watching. Thanks for having me. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.